Good morning. Thank you, guys, worship team. I love the uh, Highlands worship arrangement of Holy, Holy, Holy. If you don't know who Highlands worship is, I would encourage you to look them up. They even have a couple of Christmas albums, I think, which you're free uh, to listen to after Thanksgiving because we're a church and not a shopping mall. And so it's proper to listen to Christmas music after Thanksgiving. Thank you, sir. If you walk into a store and there's Halloween decorations up and they're playing Christmas music at the same time, then you know how our society is crumbling as we know it. So, welcome this morning. I do want to wish you a happy Thanksgiving, this Thanksgiving week, and invite you back tonight at 6 o'clock for our Thanksgiving fellowship over in the gym, as Jeremy mentioned to you. We'll get a head start on that holiday weight gain, which we all look forward to. So, bring your best sides tonight, and we'll see you at 6 o'clock. Also, Jeremy mentioned, we have some special guests with us in the auditorium this morning, and uh, that is our youngsters. First of all, parent, if your child is in the nursery, you should probably leave now and go get them, because there are no workers over there. I fear for what they've already done uh, to the kids' wing as we know it. But welcome, kiddos. I'm glad to see you. Welcome to Big Church. And we'll be as quick as we can this morning and so you can get home and have some lunch. Today we're looking at Romans chapter 2, and we're going to take another week to just look at one verse. Next week we'll probably be able to take a whole chunk of them, but this week we're going to look at verse 5. And this is the second time we've come to the the topic of the wrath of God. So let's read these verses together. I'm going to start in verse 1 of chapter 2, and then we'll include verse 5, which is today's passage. Romans chapter 2, starting in verse 1, it says, Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Verse 5, But because of your hard and impenitent hearts, You are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. So today we're going to focus on that last verse, as I mentioned. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. You know, at our house, uh, Dan and I don't watch a lot of TV, but one of the things we like to watch are procedural police dramas. Things like Law and Order, which is the best police drama since the Andy Griffith show. (laughs) One of the others that Dan occasionally watches is called 48 Hours or 48 Hours Mystery or something. Do you all know that show? I haven't seen very many episodes, but the ones I've seen are all about when a wife murders her husband 
and then the police try to figure out how that happened. She snapped? Oh. Should I be concerned about this? No, of course not. It'll be fine. I'm sure lots of people take notes while they're watching television. In those shows, these procedural dramas, sometimes you've, certainly you've seen one in which the police suspect someone of having committed the crime, but they can't do anything about it because they don't have probable cause to proceed with the investigation, to search them or, or whatever, to arrest them. And so later in the show, maybe the bad guy gets caught and the police inevitably will face criticism for not acting sooner because people feel sort of a natural inclination. They feel that evil demands both intervention and outrage. And they're deeply upset if it doesn't happen. In fact, the longer it goes on, the longer it's allowed to continue unchallenged, it seems that the outrage is intensified. And that's just us. So why do you think we're unwilling to grant the same rightness of outrage over evil to God? Well, the only reason I can think of and the only one I've found any justification for is that most of us feel like our sins, the things we do wrong, are excusable. We forget that they are judged in the sight of a holy God. And that makes us not much different from the criminals on our cop shows. You see, our sins are measured not by our own relative and wavering and changing ideas of what is right and wrong, but by God's absolute and utterly righteous criteria, His law and His holiness. Now, do you remember the first time in here that we talked about the idea of the wrath of God here in Romans? It was back in chapter 1. And in verse 18, we read this. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So this verse really, I think, contains an important theme that we need to remember, and that is that the wrath of God is not only something that's being stored up for a future day, as today's passage indicated, but rather it's something that God has been revealing to us even now. And we, we covered that back in chapter 1. Today's verse, verse 5, teaches us that there is a day of wrath to come. But the first thing that Paul says about the wrath of God is that it is already being revealed from heaven. Which tells you it's a very real thing. You could even say that the, the future certainty of a day of wrath is guaranteed by the fact that we can already see God's wrath being revealed now. It does exist. But how exactly is that being revealed Perhaps one of the most complete and accurate descriptions of this 
that I've seen, it comes from a 19th century Scottish theologian named Robert Haldane. And here's his quote. It was revealed, he's talking about the wrath of God, that is what the it is. It was revealed when the sentence of death was first pronounced. The earth cursed and man driven out of the earthly paradise. And afterward, by such examples of punishment as those of the deluge, Uh, and the destruction of the cities of the plain by fire from heaven. But above all, the wrath of God was revealed from heaven when the Son of God came down to manifest the divine character, and when the wrath was displayed in his sufferings and death in a manner more awful than by all the tokens God had before given of his displeasure against sin. See, in chapter 1, Paul points out, if you can, as we continue to read through that chapter, he points out that the wrath of God is revealed chiefly through this downward tendency or this downward drag of sin upon our lives. I mean, we think that we can sin just a little, but we can't because sin captures us and it pulls us down until if we are allowed to continue in that sin... We end up calling what is good evil and what is evil good and we'll perish utterly. That's the message of chapter 1. And this, of course, means that the moral turmoil and chaos that we see in the world, maybe even in your own personal world, in your own life, is evidence that the wrath of God is no fiction. It is true and it is being revealed from heaven. And this is something to be gravely concerned about. But there's more that we can learn. Here in verse 5, Paul says some other truths about God's wrath that we should take note of. His first point is that the wrath of God toward the sin of men and women is deserved. It should be obvious as... We've gone through the end of chapter 1 and even thus far into chapter 2 that we deserve this. God's wrath is deserved because our our ignorance of God is willful ignorance. We talked about that last week. And our refusal to seek Him out and worship Him is a willful refusal. I mean, we talked about in in chapter 1... That God has revealed his existence and his power in nature such that everyone should recognize it. But we don't. We do not do it. We do not recognize God as God and give thanks to him. And the reason we don't is just we don't want to. I mean, we've talked about it in here before. It's a very interesting debate if you want to get into it with someone is that we do the things we want to do. We like to make excuses, but everything we do is because we want to, even the most unlikely of things. I've been told multiple times by pseudo-doctors that I need to go to the gym and work out more. I don't like that. I get hot and tired and cranky because I'm hot and tired, and then about two days later, I feel like Lazarus in the tomb. I'm just dead. And yet I'm told to go do this because it's good for me. And you might think, well, you go, but you don't want to. And 
there's some truth to that. But the real truth is I go because I want to because the alternative is even worse. And that is by the time I'm 65, I can't even dress myself. And I don't trust Dana to lay out and put on the correct clothes for me. And so I must maintain the ability to dress myself. And so I go to the gym because I want to, even though I hate it. The things you do, you do because you want to. And the fact that mankind did not acknowledge God as God and did not give thanks to him is because he didn't want to do those things. But the case that Paul makes here in chapter 2 is even stronger than that. You see, in Romans 1, Paul teaches us that God's wrath is revealed because we refuse to acknowledge God as God. But chapter 2 goes even further. And it says that the wrath of God is coming upon mankind because of his stubborn refusal to repent. And that word repent takes us back to verse 4 that we looked at last week. Verse 4 says, Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? So here Paul gives two paths that we have before us, that we have a choice to take. One path is the path of contempt toward God's blessings of kindness and forbearance and patience. And the other path, the one that Paul recommends to us here, is the one of repentance. Paul argues that this kindness and forbearance and patience of God is intended to lead us to repentance. But will this happen? Is it happening now? Well, the answer appears in verse 5, where Paul writes of our hard and impenitent hearts. You see, apparently this kindness and forbearance and patience of God do not have the effect by themselves of leading men and women to repentance. In fact, you could say on the contrary, people who have already suppressed the truth about God, that God, that that truth that is revealed in nature now add to their evil by hardening their hearts toward him rather than repenting. So we've seen that the wrath of God against the race, the human race, is deserved on two counts. First, it's because we reject the natural revelation of God. And secondly, we've shown contempt for his patience toward us. So... God's wrath is deserved. But there's more. Another important teaching here in this verse that we should probably understand is that the wrath of God is proportionate to human sin in the sense that those who sin much will be punished much. Those who sin less will be punished less. And I will tell you that this concept has been a problem for some Christians because many people think of hell's punishments being poured out on unbelievers simply because they refuse to accept Jesus Christ. And since that sin, although it's a great sin, is, seems to be the same for everybody, that the punishments of hell should be equal. But Paul uses some interesting language here in verse 5. 
He speaks of this stubborn and hard-hearted person, this unrepentant person, as storing up wrath for the day of God's judgment. Storing up wrath. And Paul here is using a banking metaphor. So if we begin to save our money, taking a small portion of each paycheck, putting it back, then we are building up, slowly but surely, a treasure. We are saving up for a rainy day. Just so, every time we sin, we add an indictment against ourselves. We are treasuring up wrath against the day of wrath, is what it says here in verse 5. So my question would be, do we really believe that? I don't think the world believes that. Every day that we sin without repenting, we are depositing future wrath into the account of God's judgment. Robert Haldane, the the gentleman I referred to earlier, says that a man is rich according to his treasures. Well, that makes sense, doesn't it? Therefore, the wicked will be punished according to the number and aggravation of their sins. They have treasured up wrath. They have stored it up. So there are various degrees of punishment in hell because hell is where God's justice is perfect. The punishment will always fit the crime. And you think if he's going to use a metaphor like banking, everybody in this room does not save the same amount. The same can be true about our sin. We We do not all sin the same amount. The amount of wrath that we're storing up is different. But so long as our hearts remain hardened, we add to that indictment moment by moment. And this is true of even things you may not think about, like when we consider the good that we receive and enjoy without giving thanks to God. Each little indulgence of sin is a coin added to our treasury of wrath. Each neglect of others, each angry word or selfish thought or mean answer or harmful act is a piling up of wrath's treasures. Again, each pleasure enjoyed without genuine thanks to God builds his wrath. The reason I keep bringing that up, this is the Thanksgiving season. Unfortunately for us, we tend to think the rest of the year is not Thanksgiving season. And so we continually enjoy the blessings of God without thanking Him. Each year of grace that we live without experiencing God's swift and immediate judgment, each moment of indifference to the mercy of God is an opportunity for wrath to accumulate for the unrepentant sinner. Let's see what else we can learn about the wrath of God. The next truth I think we should pay attention to is that the wrath of God is certain. So we deserve it, it's proportionate, and now it is certain. Somehow people don't seem to think this. 
people who spurn God's patience somehow think that in the end, somehow they are going to get free and escape what they deserve. And perhaps that's what the people Paul is addressing in this chapter thought. You can look at the debased moral practices of the world around us. Maybe that's what these people were doing as they looked at that list that Paul lays out at the end of chapter 1. And they and we alike imagine some kind of moral superiority to them and believe we'll escape judgment. Paul says that is not so. In fact, quite the contrary. The very awareness of high moral standards that we may have coupled with our refusal to repent of our own sin intensifies our guilt and assures our condemnation. It ensures the wrath of God against us. It is certain. But there's one phrase I think that makes it certain, and that is the phrase, the day of wrath, in verse 5. Why is this time of the outpouring of God's wrath called a day? Do you think it means a literal 24-hour day? Well, I I don't think that's what it means. I find a very similar phrase in a very familiar passage. In Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, you may be able to finish this verse. It says, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at, and then it finishes with, the day of Jesus Christ. I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. That day of Jesus Christ refers to the second coming of Christ. So, is the significance of the word day there that it'll take 24 hours to accomplish? Again, I don't think that's what it means at all. I think the significance of the word day, both in Philippians chapter 1 verse 6 and in Romans chapter 2 verse 5, is to indicate that this is a day fixed on God's calendar. It's as certain as Thanksgiving is fixed on our calendar on Thursday. The day is determined. It is sure. It is certain. So when that day rolls around, the wrath of God will be poured out despite what you or anyone else hopes to the contrary. It is certain there will be a day of God's wrath. But let's move on. That's not all we learn here in chapter 2, verse 5. Another point is that God's wrath is a just wrath. And by that I mean it is not arbitrary or petulant. Verse 5 talks about God's righteous judgment there at the end. So when Paul talks about judgment, he bases that judgment on the law of God. The judgment of God will be according to his law and his commands, not his feelings. It's not that you just made God upset, you hurt his feelings. No, it'll be a righteous judgment based on his law. Because one of the great problems we have is our sin leads us to try to justify ourselves. It leads us to self-justification. So that anything that happens to us that we don't like, Immediately, we blame God. 
will say, that's unjust. God, you created the universe in an unfair way that is unjust. The only thing I want from you is justice. Well, let me just tell you, frankly, as a friend, God forbid that you ever experience the justice of God. That's the last thing you want. The justice of God will condemn you. And the terror of the justice of God is that God is a just God. The God of all the earth does right. Abraham said this in Genesis chapter 18, verse 25. Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is right? Sin is punished now in large measure, but it will be punished fully and equitably in the life to come, justly. Do not ask God for justice. Seek mercy. Seek it where salvation from the wrath of God may alone be found. And you may ask, well, where is that? I mean, if God's wrath is deserved by us, which we've covered, if it is proportionate to our sin, if it is as certain as the calendar, if it is just, and even if it is partially being poured out now through the natural unfolding of sin in our lives, how can we possibly avoid it? We're sinners. Well, the only place we can go is to Christ because he bore the full measure of the wrath of God in our place. So I guess I could ask, do you doubt that God's wrath is real? Or do you doubt that it's threatening? If you do, you need only to look at Jesus in the hours preceding his crucifixion. Some of you know about Socrates and you look at his death and he calmly drank hemlock, remember, and, and died. Jesus was not like that. It says in John chapter 12, verse 27, that Jesus' soul was troubled. He agonized in the Garden of Gethsemane. And we read in Matthew chapter 26 that he asked for the cup that God had prepared for him, the cup of his wrath to be taken away. You see, it wasn't that Jesus was afraid of death. He had as much courage as Socrates did. The reason Jesus trembled before death is that his death was not going to be like the death of any mortal man. Jesus was not just dying for himself. He was going to die for others. He was going to take upon himself the full measure of the wrath of God that was deserved by you and me and everyone else. And he did that so the justice of God might be satisfied and sinners might be spared. And so that's what happened. The time came when Jesus was led away to be crucified and he was hung on a cross 
midway between earth and heaven. A bridge, if you will, between sinful man and a holy God. The man who knew no sin was made to be sin for us. And there, God's wrath was poured out. You see, for centuries, the wrath of God that men and women had been storing up had been accumulating. You can think of it like water behind a a huge dam. You know, here and there, a little of the water sloshed over the dam. There were things like, we mentioned earlier, Sodom and Gomorrah. Or Jerusalem being conquered and the people being sent off into exile. But for the most part, the wrath of God just accumulated year after year, growing higher and broader and deeper and more turbulent. And then Jesus died. And when he did, the dam was opened and the great weight of that accumulated wrath of God was poured out on him. He took God's wrath for us and he bore its fury in our place. No wonder his righteous soul shrank back from the whole idea of the atonement. He had never committed a single sin. He was spotless and without blame. Because he was blameless and because he was God, he was able to stand in the breach for you and for me to secure our salvation. And God demonstrated clearly that he had done this. You see, in Jerusalem, there was a temple. And the central part of that temple was a place called the Most Holy Place. God was understood to dwell symbolically in that place. And before that room hung a thick curtain. And it symbolized the barrier that sin had created between a holy God and a sinful man. Anyone who would go beyond that barrier would instantly die, as it happened in history before. That curtain was torn in two when Jesus died. And not only just that, but from top to bottom. For centuries it had hung there proclaiming that God was holy and that man was sinful and that the way to God was strictly barred. But now, Jesus died for sin. He took the place of anyone who would trust Him and receive the benefit of that sacrifice. So the wrath of God was expended upon Him. Now the way was open. There was nothing left but God's great love and kindness. This is the gospel. It's what's open to you if you'll approach God, not on the basis of your own good works, for those will condemn you, but on the basis of Christ's having borne the wrath of God in your place. You see, this wrath of God that's being stored up by man is thundering down through history. And it must break upon you one day unless you stand before God in Jesus Christ. Martin Luther began his spiritual uh, pilgrimage by fearing the wrath of God. And then he later came to find peace 
in Christ. And it was the book of Romans that changed it for him. But he never forgot the reality of the final judgment. And he always warned his hearers to flee from that judgment, to flee to Christ. Here's one of the things he said. The last day is called the day of wrath and of mercy, the day of trouble and of peace, the day of destruction and of glory. And he was absolutely right. It has to be one or the other of each of those pairs. If it is to be a day of mercy and peace for you rather than a day of wrath and trouble, it will only be because you're trusting in Jesus Christ. As I close this morning, I'm going to ask our worship team to return to the stage, please. By the time Paul was writing the book of Romans, he had been preaching the gospel for at least 22 years. So you can imagine someone who's been preaching for that long would be able to anticipate people's responses to the various things that he said. He would anticipate their objections and tailor his arguments knowing what their objections might be. So here we have Paul warning about the wrath that we store up for ourselves when we reject God, when we reject the gospel, when we harden our heart and when we refuse to repent. This can be, and I've read many commentators say this, this is the scariest verse in the Bible. That we as people are storing up the wrath of God. But you see, we have a choice. We can listen to the good news of the gospel and we can trade our condemnation for freedom. We can trade our guilt for forgiveness. We can trade our misery and our sorrow for gladness. I mean, we learned last week that God is kind in his tolerance or his forbearance and in his patience or long-suffering. But we also learn that we as man tend to presume upon these qualities and refuse to repent. Can I just say, what a ridiculous position to be in. Because you're guilty. We are guilty. We are storing up wrath for ourselves. And yet, instead of God instantly punishing us, condemning us now to what we deserve, He is kind and tolerant and patient. Not only that, but He offers up His own Son as a substitute for us to take that wrath upon Himself. The wrath that you have been storing up, He poured out on Jesus. You just have to repent of your sin. Put your faith and your trust in that very Jesus. And so I guess my question is, will you do that today? Earlier in Romans, Paul called those who reject Jesus Christ fools. After hearing of this description of God's wrath and hearing that he's given us an alternative to that wrath, and that is his forgiveness through repentance, I would say that the days of playing the fool are past. Today is the day of salvation. So friends, I'm asking you to consider the claims of the gospel this morning. But consider them in the light of the alternative. 
the wrath that, that you are storing up for the day of wrath. Thank God for his mercy and his grace. Let's pray together.